Well, hey, everyone. Thanks for taking time to hang out with us today. Uh, I want to talk to you about something uh, I think a lot of you are talking about and that I've gotten a lot of questions about, and that is the current conflict that is going on in Israel right now. Uh, so let me just start out by saying that this is very out of the ordinary, not just for the orchard, but for me. I really don't think that as pastors and churches that we should feel compelled to talk about every current political event that is happening because often in the world we live in, the hot takes are just that, hot takes. They're very reactionary, and they don't leave a lot of room for thought and nuance, and so I don't like to talk about these things uh, from the pulpit, so to speak. Uh, but with this one, I've gotten so many questions, and the, what specifically are the biblical implications uh, of this current conflict that I thought it would be good for us to talk about today. Uh, that said, uh, it's not going to be a normal sermon where we usually take a passage of Scripture, walk through the Scripture to understand what the Lord is saying to us through it, how we apply it to our lives. Uh, today is going to be a little bit different. It's just going to be more of a conversation, part history lesson, part theology lesson, uh, and then some implications for us to think through. Um, now, we will be referring to some Scriptures, but there's not going to be like one Scripture that we're walking through together. So, uh, I hope that you find this helpful. If you have any other questions, uh, and I'll say this again at the end. I'd love for you to reach out, let us know. Maybe we can talk about them. Uh, but this conflict in Israel and uh, really Palestine has been an issue for the last several weeks that has caught national headlines. Uh, there's new things happening every day, and I think most people at least are aware of it. And then the questions are, you know, who's right, who's wrong? Uh, does this mean that the end times are coming? Stuff like that. So for today, uh, what we're going to do is just kind of walk through it together, and I'm going to share with you some of my thoughts, I'm going to share with you some history, and then we're going to talk about the biblical implications of it. So uh, let's just start out today by dealing with the history of Israel and Palestine. So this land, uh, Israel, in the Middle East today, um, has been occupied by both Hebrews or Jews uh, and Arabs for a very, very long time. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at that land in Israel and the countries surrounding it, um, it has been occupied by Jewish people and Arab people for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, the Jewish people uh, have made up a sizable chunk of the population in that region since around 1500 BC, uh, give or take a couple hundred years, uh, when God gave that land to Abraham and they were led out into, you know, uh, Egypt and came back in the Exodus. Anyway, they've been there for a long time. Uh, we know from Scripture, though, that when Joshua led the nation of Israel into the conquest of the land, uh, that there were already people living there, right? That there were all these different peoples and cultures and tribes uh, that were living in the promised land, and God commanded Joshua uh, to go in and to drive them out. Now, most of those cultures that we see Israel interacting with in the Old Testament, uh, they don't exist today. At some point in history, all of those tribes and cultures that inhabited the land alongside of Israel um, ceased to exist. But I think it's important for us to note, because sometimes we may miss this in our head, that none of those cultures in uh, Israel were Muslim 
cultures. Uh, When Israel came in, at first with Abraham and then again under Joshua, none of those cultures were Muslim cultures. Why? Uh, Well, because Islam is the youngest of the three major world monotheistic monotheistic religions. Uh, You have uh, Islam uh, that was established after Judaism, after Christianity. Islam was not established until the lifetime of the prophet Muhammad around 600 AD or roughly about 2,000 years after the Jewish people began to settle in the land. Um, I think that's important for us to note because we see the conflict in the Middle East now, specifically in the nation of Israel, as very much a Jewish and Muslim conflict. Uh, that it's a fight between who was there first, the Jews or the Muslims. Well, but that's not what the fight is. The Jews were obviously there first. There were people there when the Jews got there. None of those people were Muslim because the Muslim religion, Islam, was not officially instituted until around 600 AD and really did not gain prominence until after. And we'll talk about that in just a second. The problematic issues are really not who got there first. Uh, The problematic issues around control of the land is the amount of control that the Jewish people have exercised over the land. What I mean by that is throughout history, the amount of Jewish people living in the land and the amount of authority or control they had in the land has varied greatly. Um, And that's primarily due to multiple captivities where the Jewish people were taken out of the land and multiple occupations where other cultures came into the land uh, by these world powers throughout history. Um, If you look at the Old Testament, we see the nations of Assyria and Babylon coming in and taking uh, Jewish people captive and taking them out of the land. So we reduce the number of people in there and the amount of control the Jewish nation has over the promised land. Um, In the New Testament, we look at the Roman Empire and see that the Roman Empire occupied Israel and they were really the governing bodies. Though there were Jews living in the land, though they may maintained some form of control. It was really a Roman-controlled area. Um, From Assyria to Babylon to Rome, Israel has always faced massive challenges from world powers uh, really jockeying for control of the land. Um, and really, we see that come to a head with the Roman Empire, right? So, so let's just, again, I know I'm throwing a lot at you. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hose. Um, think about history, right? 1200 BC, Jews come into the promised land, okay? The tribes that are there uh, are driven out. Many of them cease to exist. Uh, as Israel settles in the land over the next hundreds of years, you have different world empires that come in, take Israel away, lead them back. They take captive. They set up occupation. But really the ones that pushed it to the brink were the Roman Empire. And this was after the life of Jesus. We, Israel came in about 1500 BC. Well, it was really in the first and second centuries AD that Rome really truly began to push the Jewish people uh, out of that land. There were many, many wars uh, where the Jews fought amongst themselves, fought with occupying Roman uh, soldiers, and they were pushed into dispersion throughout Europe. Uh, one major rebellion in the first or second century uh, was the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. The Bar Kokhba Rebellion uh, ended in 132 AD, and it was after that rebellion that Rome decided to name this land Palestine. 
That's where the name Palestine comes from. And ironically, Rome was naming the land Palestine uh, as a dig at the Jewish people because they were naming it Palestine after Israel's ancient and at that time no longer existent foe, the Philistines. So that's where the name Palestine came from in 132 AD. And the point behind that was, is they were trying to further alienate the Jewish people from this land that is modern-day Israel. Um, Many in the Roman Empire did this for various reasons, but the result was the same. They were trying to push the Jews out of their land, and they were successful uh, to a large degree, and many Jews began to go into dispersion, even though there was still a large concentration of Jews in Israel. Um, After kind of the Roman control fell away, uh, control of the land was primarily through splintered tribal controls. Uh, And this was true of all of Arabia, the Middle East during this time. There were just a lot of different tribes that controlled different parts of the land. This is where Muhammad came from and Islam came to uh, rise. Muhammad was part of one of these tribes. And as he founded the nation or the, the religion of Islam and Islam, Islam began to spread and influence. Around 12 to 1300 BC, this is 600 years after Islam, the Ottoman Empire, uh, and you learned about that in school, the Ottoman Empire brought the first real regional control to the Middle East since the Roman Empire. So you got about a thousand years of just very splintered control of this part of the world. And now the Ottoman Empire, which is an Islamic empire, comes in and takes control. During that time, after about 1300 AD, uh, due primarily to Muslim and honestly secondarily Christian attempts uh, to hold the Holy Land, the Jewish people were severely persecuted and they were pushed even further into dispersion across Europe. So those Jews who were left, many of them had to flee as well. The persecution of the Jewish people grew further and further ultimately climaxing in the atrocities of the Holocaust under Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s. So we have uh, the Jewish people taking control of the land around 1500 BC. We have world powers occupying, bringing captivity. We have tribal control. We have the Ottoman Empire. But after World War I and the defeat of the Ottoman Empire and Axis powers, control of the Middle East was given primarily uh, to the British and to the French. Okay, so the Ottoman Empire is no more after World War I, 1917. Uh, control of the area is given to the British and the French. If you grew up thinking about uh, Lawrence of Arabia and the French Foreign Legion, all of that is in this time period. And from 1917 to 1948, the British colonial mandate ruled modern-day Israel. But in 1948, there was a bloody war of independence in the land, and the Jewish people who were there gained victory. And in 1948, the new modern state of Israel was formed. Uh, And then, in response to intense persecution that we saw exemplified in the Holocaust, the United Nations ratified the creation of this modern-day state of Israel and what is known as the Zionist movement, which just means that Jews who have been spread historically start moving back to Israel. They come in full force. Um, 
So that's a lot. That, that's what kind of brings us to, to kind of the modern era, right? The Jews came. Uh, they had a bunch of issues. They were there. They were pushed out. There was tribal control. Uh, the British took over. I mean, it, it's a lot. So, so let's just say it like this. There have always been at least a remnant of Jews living in the land, and there have always been Arabs living in the land. In 1900, Arabs made up well over 90% of the population of modern-day Israel. In 1947, there were 400,000 Jewish people living in Palestine and 800,000 Palestinians. But in 1948, 700,000 of those 800,000 Palestinians, uh, after Israel was established and the Jewish people set up government, 700,000 of those Palestinians became refugees and they moved to refugee camps that were registered with the United Nations. Those refugee camps were in areas that we know today as the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. If you look at a map of Israel, you have the West Bank that is on the west side of Israel and the Gaza Strip, which connects to Egypt on the very eastern side uh, of Israel. Uh, The border between Israel and these two Palestinian territories, the West Bank and Gaza, was established and called the Green Line. Today, the population of Israel is 8.2 million, and about 20% of that population is Arab Israeli, and most of them live in northern Israel. But keep in mind that there are 1.8 million people that live in Gaza and 2.8 million people that live in the West Bank that are not Israeli citizens. They are who we mean when we say Palestinians. That is who the Palestinians are. The Arab people who were living in Israel when it was formed that were driven out of Israel into these refugee camps, which became established as non-citizen areas of the country, the West Bank and Gaza. Um, If you were to just draw a circle around that part of the world, uh, modern-day Israel, you would have about 50% Arab Palestinians and about 50% Jews. That's the tension. That's the tension. It's this current population. It's a tension around who has what right to the land. That's where we're at today, and that is what has led to the issues between Israel and the Palestinians. So when we look at what is happening today in Israel, it specifically centers around Gaza and the nation of Israel. And so let's kind of think through the current groups that are involved in this conflict. So number one, We have the political state of Israel, right? They are a recognized state, nation, country in the world. They have a police force, a military force. They are a recognized state. Uh, The second group are, as we said, the Palestinians. Now, the Palestinians are a recognized people group, but there is not a recognized Palestinian country. There are two pieces of land, territories, that the Palestinians live in. One is the primary one that we're talking about today, Gaza. Gaza connects with Egypt. It's on the eastern side of Israel. It's a very narrow strip of land. And Gaza is under the elected, the elections were probably rigged, elected rule of Hamas. Hamas is a religious terrorist organization who is founded upon the death of every Jewish person and the eradication of the nation of Israel. Now, let me be clear. 
Everyone who lives in Gaza is not Hamas, but Hamas is the government in control of Gaza, and they are a religious terrorist organization. Okay? The other group of Palestinians are in the West Bank. That is where most Palestinians live. Bethlehem, for instance, is in the West Bank, and they are under the rule of Fatah. Fatah is not a religious group. It is a secular group that is fighting for Palestinian rights and Palestinian freedom. But at this point, they are not militant. And again, they are not primarily, primarily religious. It is a secular group. So even when we talk about Palestinians, we have Gazans and those who live in the West Bank, and they are not the same. Now, there is some overlap, but they are not the same. The issues today are with Israel and with Gaza. And then the complicating matters are all of the surrounding Arab states. Uh, you have Lebanon and Syria to the north of Israel, which uh, Lebanon houses another group that you've heard of. That is Hezbollah. Hezbollah is not Hamas. Hamas is a terrorist organization in Gaza. Hezbollah is a religious anti-Jewish militia. Okay, So they are religious, they are anti-Jewish, but they really border on that line of actually being terrorists. They operate more as a militia or military than a terrorist cell. Now what is interesting is Hamas and Hezbollah are both religious groups, they're both militant, they're both Muslim, but they are from two different sects of Islam, so they don't even always get along, right? So you have uh, Gaza to the east, you have the West Bank in the west, you have Lebanon and Hezbollah uh, along with Syria in the north, and then one of the primary uh, groups who is funneling all of the hatred toward Israel is the nation of Iran. Now, Iran probably wields the most anti-Israeli influence in the world. Iran has allied themselves with Russia and with China, and it is the worst-kept secret in the world that they are the ones who back Hamas and Hezbollah, okay? But Iran is smart enough to kind of keep all of this at arm's distance so that they can claim innocence in what's happening, but you need to be aware that they are tied into all of this. All of these states, Lebanon, Syria, uh, Iran, they want to see Israel cease to exist. That, that is their goal. So that is the stage that is set for the modern day conflict. Um, what do we need to know about this Israeli-Palestinian conflict that is happening in Gaza right now? Um, I think the first thing, that you need to know is that this is not simply a Muslim and Jewish conflict, okay? Now, don't get me wrong. Most people in Israel are Jewish. Most people in Gaza are Muslim, uh, Muslim, but you need to know that there are Israeli Christians and there are Palestinian Christians. As a matter of fact, about one and a half percent of Palestinians who live in Gaza and the West Bank, about one and a half percent of that population are Christians. And these Christians are not a part of Hamas, but they are pro-Palestinian. And listen, they are severely persecuted for their faith in Jesus. 
And so we need to make sure when we think about this conflict that at the forefront of our minds, we are praying for our Palestinian Christian brothers and sisters and that we pray pray, uh, for their safety and that we pray for the spread of the gospel in Gaza and in the West Bank. That is the highest need right now is that people in that part of the world would be saved. Um, Second thing that I think that you should know uh, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, Israel, listen to me, Israel has done some shady stuff. I'm just going to shoot you straight. Uh, I know that there's a lot of, well, whose side should we be on? Who are the good guys and the bad guys? And a lot of people, you know, especially if you're a conservative American, if you are a Christian American, uh, we hold Israel in high regard. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, But I think if we're just going to be honest and objective, Israel has done some shady stuff in in dealing uh, with the Palestinian people. Uh, For instance, there is the wall, okay? Not talking about a wall in southern U.S. We're talking about a wall in Israel around Gaza. To reinforce uh, its strength, Israel constructed a border wall along the West Bank border and some in Gaza, which is illegal under international law. However, Israeli response, the way they get around that is that, well, 94% of that wall is actually a fence. Now, Israel built this wall, and it has in all fairness, greatly reduced the number of terrorist attacks against Israel, but the wall that isolates these people from moving freely in the country, it's a human rights violation. And you can get the reasoning behind it, but honestly, um, it's it's a little shady. Uh, The other thing that Israel has done is that they have created settlements inside of these Palestinian territories, specifically the West Bank, they have moved people into these settlements. And the point behind it is they are trying to take back more of the land that is Palestinian controlled uh, in the West Bank. Uh, Again, these settlements are against UN UN policy and international law. You can agree with it, disagree with it, but it's illegal at this point. Uh, And beyond that, there's just honestly human rights violations with Israel and the Palestinians. Israel has been guilty of forcibly evicting innocent Palestinians from their home. They've given them inability to return to their homes where they are separated from their possessions, from their family. Israel's hands are not clean in this conflict. But hear me out. Despite Israel's human rights violations, we can, with extreme moral clarity, condemn Hamas and the recent attacks. I need you to hear me say this, okay? Israel is not innocent. Israel's hands are not clean. But what Hamas has done is evil and should be universally condemned. Hamas is evil. Hamas are terrorists. Listen to me. These attacks that happened this month in Israel by Hamas were specifically targeted to kidnap, torture, and kill Israeli civilians. Now I want you to listen to me. If Hamas had taken civilian hostages, that itself would have been evil. But maybe we could say, well, there was some military trading that was going on. And there has been maybe one or two of those. But listen to me. Hamas didn't just go in and take hostages. Hamas deliberately designed military operations with the aim of murdering civilians. That is evil. 
We do not have to, uh, have to uh, vacillate on this position. It is evil. It is wrong. Those civilian victims were not collateral damage of attacks by military targets. The civilians themselves were the targets. There is no justification for this butchery. Now hear me. Israel has been guilty of civilian casualties. When Israel fires rockets back into Gaza, there are civilian casualties and they are to be mourned and lamented. But hear me out. While there may be civilian casualties, Israel has never had civilian targets. And to be clear, the reason there are civilian casualties in Gaza is because Hamas hides its military operations, headquarters, and weapons in heavily uh, occupied civilian areas in order to dissuade rockets coming over from Israel. So they are the ones putting hospitals and schools and neighborhoods in the line of fire purposefully. You need to hear me. Hamas hides its military behind civilians. Israel hides its civilians behind its military. That is the moral difference in this conflict. If Israel stops fighting, Hamas keeps going and wants to see every Jew murdered and Israel cease to exist. If Hamas stops fighting, Israel stops fighting back. It's just that simple. But what are the biblical implications? Right? Because up to this point, this has been history. This has been politics. Chip, what are the biblical implications here? Well, I think the first thing is that when we think of biblical implications, we got to think of Israel and the Jewish people because the Jewish people are God's people, sort of. And, and here's what I mean. Um, In the Old Testament, God established the Jewish nation through Abraham to be his chosen people on earth, displaying his glory to the nations. God makes a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Right? So God makes a covenant with Abraham to make the Jewish nation his chosen people. God promises to bless Israel. He promises to bless those who bless Israel. And he promises to give them a land. However... They were only promised to remain in the land as long as they remained obedient to the Lord. Because of their failure to be obedient, Israel was attacked and taken captive from the land on several different occasions. So the Jewish people today are in disobedience before the Lord because of their rejection of Jesus as the promised Messiah. And therefore, they have at least temporarily forfeited their divine right to the promised land. Why do I say that? Because a non-covenant-keeping people does not have a divine right to hold the land of promise which was given to them by covenant. Covenant-breaking forfeits covenant privileges. God said this to Israel in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. Look at that first word, if. 
If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Israel has been disobedient. They've rejected the Messiah. So they have at least temporarily forfeited their divine right to the land. However, I believe that the Bible clearly teaches that God is not through with Israel and that their disobedience is not the final word. God has a saving purpose for Israel. And I believe that all Israel will someday turn to the Lord and as a nation will follow Him and surrender to Him. That's my understanding of Romans 11. We don't have time to read through all of that today. These, Paul would say, broken off branches of the nation of Israel are going to be grafted back into God's people, the bride of Christ, His church. And I think that we should pray for that. We should pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. But now... Today, regardless of heritage or nationality, those who have repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus as Savior, those people are now God's people here on earth. That is the church. We, the church, are the inheritors of the promises. Israel and the promised holy land were meant primarily to be forerunners to show shadows of the greater truths of Jesus and his bride, the church, that were coming one day. So yes, we want to see Israel as a special people, but just because they were a covenant people in the Old Testament does not mean they have broken that covenant. And because they have broken that covenant, they are living under God's judgment and curse. And just because they are now doesn't mean they forever will be because we believe God still one day has a purpose for the nation of Israel. I know that this has been a lot, uh, but I don't think we can finish without me just really quickly answering this question. Okay, then, uh, well, what about the end times? Right, because that's the question, right? Well, what, what does all this fighting in Israel mean about the end times? Because I know Jesus said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. He did. There is. There always has been. Um, but I know about when Israel is attacked, isn't that a sign of the end times? Um, yes and no. Here's what you need to know. What we are seeing in Israel right now has happened before. And listen, it will happen again. Uh, let me read to you from Psalm 83. Uh, Psalm 83, I believe, is a prophetic psalm, uh, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. This is what we read. God, do not keep silent. Do not be deaf, God. Do not be quiet. See how your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones. They say, come, let's wipe them out as a nation so that Israel's name will no longer be remembered. For they have conspired with one one mind. They form an alliance against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, even Assyria has joined them. They lend support to the sons of Lot. So why am I reading that to you? Because we know that this is talking about the nations surrounding Israel conspiring together to attack Israel and wipe them from the map. And here's the thing. Bible scholars can't agree when this happened. Because it has happened. And it will happen again. This is the current reality of Israel. God's people have been hated. They are going to be attacked and persecuted. However... I personally do not believe that the events happening between Israel and Hamas today are directly tied to the fulfillment of end times prophecy. Let me say that one more time. 
I personally do not believe that the events happening between Israel and Hamas are directly tied to the fulfillment of end times prophecy. Well, Chip, how can you say that? Well, because the primary place that people want to tie this to end times promise, uh, prophecy is the battle of Israel, specifically with Gog and Magog. And if you remember back when I talked about, you know, Iran and China and Russia, they're saying, Chip, this is it, Chip, this is it, Chip, this is it. It may be, but I just don't think so. It may be tremors of what is coming later. I could get behind that, but I don't believe this event specifically is tied directly to end times prophecy, especially Gog and Magog. If you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, the battles of Gog and Magog uh, are in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Uh, It comes after the prophesied reunification of the nation of Israel in uh, Ezekiel 37, which by the way, that was a prophecy directly fulfilled in 1948. Um, But I don't think 38 and 39 of Ezekiel are what's happening today. Why is that? It's because the battle of Gog and Magog uh, happened during a time of peace. And that's not where Israel is nor has been. Uh, Let me read to you just two verses out of Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel chapter 38 uh, verse 11 says this, you will say, God speaking about what Magog or what Gog will say, you will say, I will advance against a land of open villages. I will come against a tranquil people who are living securely and all of them living without walls and without bars or gates. Don't think that's where Israel is. Matter of fact, they have walls, they have bars, they have gates. Uh, Also, same sentiment in verse 14. uh, Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, this is what the Lord God says, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, you will not know this and come from your place in the remotest part of the north, you and many peoples with you, riding horses, a huge assembly, a powerful army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. It will happen in the last days, Gog, that I will bring you against my land so that nations may know me when I demonstrate my holiness through your sight. And God goes on to say, I'm going to destroy you. But focus back on verse 14 again. Israel will be living securely. I think that all of us know there's been too much happening in the Middle East for that to be considered living securely right now, at least in my opinion. So the fact that this has happened in a tumultuous time lends me to believe these are not the events in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I believe those events are still to come. That's my personal belief. But here's the other thing you need to know. Even if you disagree with me, even if you'd say, no, Chip, this is part of the Gog prophecy, maybe it is, but here's what you need to know. There is no definite timeline of events that lead directly to the second coming. Now, I know that there are guys with charts who say this is going to happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen. That is, at best, an educated guess. There is no clear, direct teaching of Scripture about the specific timing of any of these events. And why is that? Because we as God's people are to live in the any moment expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. Paul and Peter lived that way. We are to live that way today. Jesus Christ could come back in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, to call his people home. There's nothing that's going to happen in Israel today, tomorrow, or a year from now that's going to trigger it. It's going to happen when it happens. Let me leave you with this. It is helpful and important for us to read our newspapers through the lens of the Bible. 
We want to interpret current events through Scripture as much as we can. It is helpful to read the newspaper through the lens of the Bible. But listen, it is dangerous to read your Bible through the lens of the newspaper. Everything that is happening has happened and it will happen again. We're called to think biblically. We're called to think clearly. But let's not be reactionary. I hope this has been helpful to you. Uh, Let me pray for you and we'll get out of here for today. God, thank you. For the, day, uh, for the day, for the time, and for the opportunity to talk about these complicated issues. I pray that it has been enlightening and helpful and that you will allow us as your people to continue to think clearly and biblically around the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.